Father, we do come to You this morning and we plead that You would remind us that You are love and You have loved us in Christ. Take Your Word, Holy Spirit, and apply it to our lives. Let the sermon that is heard be much better than the one that is preached for the glory of Christ. And all the redeemed said together, Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite the children to make their way up and find their teachers, and you can be seated. Uh, as the teachers come forward and the kiddos come forward, let me uh, call your attention to a couple of things. Uh, here on the table and on the tables in the back are two things for you to take home with you. Uh, one are these little Gospel of Luke's. Uh, and so, Lord willing, next Sunday, we will be starting a lengthy exposition through the Gospel of Luke. And so, uh, these are what they're called ESV journaling Bibles. And so, we'd love for you to take one if you're going to use it. Don't take it just because it looks nice and it'll look good on your shelf. If you will use it, take it. Uh, they're our gift to you and we pray that it will be an uh, encouragement to you as we make our way through the book of Luke over the next X number of weeks. Second is our annual week of prayer and fasting. And so these are devotionals that have been written by members of our church. This starts next Sunday, the 15th. So we'll take a week of prayer and fasting as we pray and fast through our church covenant. And then on Friday, September 20th, we'll come back here and sing God's praise together. So make sure you pick those up on your way out. They are at the front and the back. Uh, But one more sermon before we get into Luke. And this morning I'll be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, and as you do that, let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, what comes to mind when you think about God? What comes to mind when you think about what God thinks about you? I suggest that these two questions are some of life's most important Because how you answer these questions are going to shape your affections and your actions. Your response to these two questions will determine what you find happiness in and what you hope for. And I think as you see, as we draw out God's word from 1 John, that he has something to say about these questions. So this letter was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was an eyewitness to the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why does he write this letter? Well, John kindly tells us. We read in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, I proclaim these things so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, here it is, so that what? Our Our what? Joy. Maybe somewhat full? Complete. Yes. John wants our joy to be full because we have fellowship with God and each other. And he goes on in the last chapter of his letter and he writes this in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe. He's writing to Christians. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. John wants those reading this letter to have a firm assurance of their salvation in Jesus. So he's written this letter to Christians to give us deep fellowship with God, deep fellowship with one another, and out of that comes full joy and firm assurance. And one of the main threads 
that ties these things together is the scarlet thread of love woven throughout every verse in this letter. This thread of love moves in all directions, beloved. It moves down from God to us. It moves up from us to God. And it moves between all of those who take the name of Christ. So if I could summarize today's verses, I might put them like this. God is love and loves us. So, beloved, love one another. God is love and loves us. So, beloved, love one another. That'll be our guiding thought this morning as we walk through the text. For my friends that are not Christians, that are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, first of all, I'm thankful that you've gathered here with us this morning. I don't think there's any other place, better place that you could be than here on Sunday morning or another gospel preaching church. And my prayer is that as we walk through the text this morning, I hope that you get a glimpse of who God is and all that He offers you in Christ. And for those that came in here trusting in Christ, Maybe you had a good week. Maybe you had a bad week. Whatever your week was like, I pray that you're freshly reminded of the warmth of God's affection for you. And this would spur you on all the more in loving each other. God is love and loves us. So, beloved, let's love one another. Let's unpack that statement one phrase at a time. God is love. Look there at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John doesn't just give us a blunt, cold command. You you should go love one another. It's not what he does. He bases what he's calling us to do on who God is. His reason for telling us to love is rooted in God's eternal nature. He tells us this twice in this text. Did you see it? Love is from God, verse 7. Then, God is love, verse 8. So not only is the God the source of all that is truly loving, but He in Himself, in His inmost being, is love. The source and the sum of love are found in God. God's essence is one of love. Love is the core of who God is. If God were to cease loving for a moment, a nanosecond, He would cease to be God. Just like a fountain must pour forth water to be a fountain, God must pour forth love because that's who He is. And notice what the text says. God is love. The definite emphasis is on God. The reciprocal is not true. Love is not God. God defines love. Love does not define God. This is what this means. We cannot take and map our finite version and flimsy thought of love on God and say that's what He's like. No, we say this is who God is and therefore this is what love must be like. And we must hold all that God is together all the time. Scripture says God is love. But you know what else it says? God is light. God is holy. God is just. God is good. And none of these contradict or diminish the other. The paw of a lion is soft. 
but it doesn't mean it's not powerful. So it is with God. His love is holy and His holiness is loving. His love is just and His justice is loving. His love is at the same time tough and tender. His love is a consuming fire that exposes sin and a comforting fortress to rescue from it, rescue us from it. All His actions are done in love because that's who He is. So it's, it's not as some might mistakenly think or purport that like there's this God of the Old Testament and He's really mean and does really bad things to really bad people. And then you get to the New Testament and you have this really cuddly version of God that loves me and accepts me just the way I am. No. There's one God of the whole Bible. And that God is love. Holy, just, infinite, eternal, good, faithful love. Love is not first something God does. Love is who He is. Let's press a little deeper. Are you beginning to see what this means? God is the Creator, but that is not part of His essence. He was God before He created. He didn't have to create to be God. So think about it this way. Ask yourself this question. What was God doing before He created? What was He doing? Well... Jesus tells us. John 17, 24. You can go read this later. He says, Father, You have loved Me before the foundation of the world. God's identity is not some generic power that creates and rules. No. Before God was Creator, before God was Ruler, He's Father and Son in love. And this love is given through the Holy Spirit. So for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, a divine community of love, other-oriented, selfless, delightful, life-giving, holy love. God's very being. Triune fellowship, triune relationship of love. So as one theologian says, he says, it is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Does this begin to overload our minds? Yes. But it's not superfluous mumbo-jumbo that doesn't matter. See, this truth that God is love, has massive theological implications for the way we think about God. And this is one of the most important things about us. So think about it. God could not be love if there were nobody to love. Love requires an object. It requires another person. Do you see where I'm going? Here's the grand implication. This means there was never a time when the sun didn't exist. There was never a time when the sun didn't exist. So this is the false heretical teaching of some who take the name of Christ. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons would say that Jesus is created. They believe there was a time when the sun was not. But if that were true, if Jesus is created and not the eternal Son of God, we've got huge problems. If there was a time when the Son did not exist, then there was a time when the Father was not the Father. And if that's true, 
then there was a time when God was not love, since love is something one person has for another. See, if God is Unitarian, that is one person, the only essence of that one person can be power. A God like that is not very good news. Putting all this together, a saying about a thousand years ago said, if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving since for all of eternity he would have nobody to love. If God were just two persons, he might be loving, but in an excluding, ungenerous way. For when two persons love one another, they can become infatuated with each other and ignore everyone else. But when the love between two persons is so happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. So it is with God. It is not then that God becomes loving, being triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is a loving God, a God who loves to include. That's good news. Amen? So do you see how much is wrapped up in those three little words? We've just begun to touch the service. God is love. That's not a corner, corny bumper sticker we put on a car. It's not a trite post we put on social media and then go think about God however we want. No. We plumb the depths of the triune God's very being. These words, God is love, tell us God's essence is one of giving, not taking. That's who God is, and so it's what God does. God is love and loves us. How? By giving. By giving who? His only Son. God is love and loves us. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So these two verses, we begin to see how God defines and demonstrates true love. And it's vastly different than what comes to mind sometimes when we think about love. So earlier this week, as I'm studying this passage and thinking, I'm, I, send my wife, I send my wife to text, and I often end those texts just by saying, love you. No, I just love you. It's quicker. And as I type that word love, I notice that my phone provides some suggested emojis. Now, to be clear, and for the record, I do not use emojis. If you do, that's fine. I do not. I'm still a holdout. I don't use them. But if I did, my phone gives me at least three suggestions. One is a big, plump, beautiful red heart. Perfect. The second are these two little purple hearts, and they're like floating off like some great fairy tale. And the third are three cascading hearts of various shades of purple that I'm not sure what it's meant to mean, but it must be something mushy and sweet. I'm not opposed to those. And I'm not against using trite things to express our affection and liking. But, they do fall short of communicating what true love is. And if we don't push ourselves to think deeper about Love, we will get caught in the puddles of our culture's self-centered definition rather than swimming in the ocean of God's selfless demonstration. In this is love. In this is love. God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The demonstration of God's love is not a cute emoji, but a blood-stained cross. 
This love is not about getting, it is giving. This love is not receiving, it is initiating. This love is not selfish, it's sacrificial. This love, as God defines love, is taking the initiative to excite life in another, even at cost to self. You get that? Taking initiative to excite life in another, it costs to self. In this text, we see God taking the initiative and giving. We see it twice. God sent His only Son. Why? Because our love was so great for Him, it compelled Him to love us? Because our religious deeds were so amazing that He said, i got to love them. No. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He loved us. God's love is not prompted by our goodness. It pours out from His free, unmerited, spontaneous, unconditional, overflowing, overwhelming, soul-staggering grace. And this gift of grace, this demonstration of love, comes to us in Jesus Christ. Do you see what John's doing? John is moving from the abstract God is love to the historical God sent His Son. See, beloved, love has a physical address. The Mount of Calvary where Christ died. And this tells us again something staggering. The work of Jesus did not force the Father to love us. The work of Christ flows from the Father's love for His children. The Father sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. So the the One who is truly God, enjoying the glories of heaven, left and put on the flesh of humanity. The infinite became incarnate. Jesus, walking earth, blood pumping through His veins, breath filling up His lungs. Loving God perfectly. Loving neighbor selflessly. Never doing any wrong. Always doing what is right. And for this, he was arrested, beaten, mocked, scorned. For this, he was nailed to a cross and hung suspended between heaven and earth. This is God's purpose in sending his son. Jesus did not die for his sin, but for mine. And for yours, if you would trust in Him. Notice that word. He's the propitiation. There's your your 50 cent theological word for the day. Propitiation. Or some of your translations might say atoning sacrifice. So the, the idea behind that word is to appease or to placate or to satisfy. So on the cross, Jesus satisfied, exhausted God's settled righteous wrath. Jesus took the full brunt of God's holy displeasure because God in His goodness and His justice cannot overlook rebellion, transgression, or iniquity. God is holy and loving and because of that, no sin can go unpunished. He's not a lazy janitor of heaven who just sweeps it all under the rug. Jesus died on the cross paying penalty for sin so that God is now propitious, favorable, toward those who trust in Christ. So here's the implication. If we need a Savior, 
We cannot save ourselves. If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll see all of us fall short of God's standard. We all do. Myself the foremost. I was repenting to God and to my daughters yesterday at about 3 o'clock. Myself the foremost. John says this in chapter 1 of his letter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we don't understand ourselves to be a sinner, Jesus has nothing to offer us. Jesus came not for the righteous, but the rebellious. John goes on in that next verse of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friend, will you acknowledge your rebellion against God? Will you confess your sins and come to Jesus that you might enjoy the fullness of God? Remember, that's why John is writing the fullness of joy and fullness of joy is found in God because He is supremely joyful. Now I realize all this talk of sin might be making some of you squiggle in your seat a little bit. I get that. If you're anything like me, before I became a Christian about 15 years ago, if you would have just if you if you would have said to me what I just said to you, I probably would have been offended and been put off. Because I thought I was too good and God was too nice. And even today, I am still tempted to compare myself to others and think that I'm better than them. And, I, and I'm tempted to do that and think, oh, well, because I'm better than them, God must be pleased with me. But that's not a good way to think about how God sees us. So it's kind of like this. I'm pretty awesome at basketball. If I'm playing my wife or daughter's. I got skills. I dominate one-on-one at River Road Park. I did it just the other day. Swagger. But what happens if LeBron James shows up? What happens to my skills? Mm, They disappear. He makes me look like a fool. So it is with our goodness and our righteousness before God. Even if we can dominate others, when God shows up, there's no comparison. Our standard before God's is like a thimble to an ocean. A match before the blazing sun. As I read this past week, there is no small sin against God because there is no small God to sin against. And our sin is even deeper than we might think. As I say, probably every time I preach, sin is not just about our actions, but our what? Our affections. Sin is not just violating God's law. It's a disordering of what? Our loves. Our loves. Sin is loving something more than God. And so sin is not this like arbitrary universal speed limit that's, that if you, you break, you get a ticket. 
That's, that's not what sin is. Sin is a personal affront, a rebellion to the God of the universe. So essentially, sin is trying to be God. That's what we see in the Bible. Go back to Genesis. The first sin, they want to be like God. So in sin, we substitute ourselves for God and say, thank you, I got it from here. But the good news is, is in salvation, God substitutes himself for us and says, I'll take it from here. What God requires from us, God provides for us. God sent His Son into the world. Perfect justice by God sending His perfect and willing Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. No other gift is possible and no other gift is conceivable. And notice what it says. Verse 9. Look there in your Bibles. God sent His only Son into the world. Why? So that we might live through Him. Remember our definition of love. True love excites life in another, even at cost to self. And that's exactly what God does for us in Christ. In Christ, we have life, eternal life. Why? Because we have a living Savior. That's why. Jesus not only paid for our sin on the cross and was buried, He rose again and brought life, eternal life. Why? Because He reconciles us back to God who is life. That's why. In Christ, we're reconciled back to God who is life. Therefore, we have life. So the goal of the gospel is not just to get our, to pay the penalty of our sins, but it's to bring us into the presence of God. And this is love. God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins that we might live. So Christian brothers and sisters, because Jesus died in your place, you are not guilty. You are not defeated. You are not forsaken. You are not unclean. You are not abandoned. You are not unworthy. You are not rejected. You are not hopeless. You are not any of those things. Because Christ conquered death in Christ and through Christ. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are cleansed. You are justified. Isn't that amazing? Is that enough for you? I hope not. It's not enough for God. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You know what else you are? Beloved. Is that what comes to mind when you think about what God thinks about you? Beloved. Did you see it in the text? John uses that term beloved twice. He starts verse 7, beloved. Then again, in case his readers forgot, short-term memory... Verse 11, beloved. If you read the whole book, you'll see it six times. Now some of your translations might say, dear friends. But the actual word is beloved. John is not primarily talking about his love for the readers. He's referencing God's love for his children. That's what, these, that's what this book is about. So this word beloved is the same word God the Father speaks over to Jesus at His baptism. This is what? This is my this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Now God speaks those words to you, Christian. Beloved. Beloved by your Heavenly Father. Cherished by Christ the Son. And bound up in the sweet fellowship of free-flowing, delightful love by the Holy Spirit. Caught up in this love of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. So Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, God the Father loves you no less than He does His eternal Son. That's amazing. He says to you, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. He says those words to you, beloved. So some of you know I have two daughters. Sometimes I will lean over and just kiss one on the head and just say, I want you to know your daddy loves you. If the other one is in sight or earshot, right? They look up at me with like these puppy dog eyes. What about me kind of face? And what do I do in that moment? I say, I don't love you because you didn't clean your room. Is that what I do? No. I lean over, kiss the other one, and I say the same thing. I just want you to know your daddy loves you. So it is with Jesus and with all those in Christ. God says the same thing. So, because of the work of Christ, because of the Father's love for us, we are not just cleared legally before God the Judge. We are loved emotionally in the heart of God the Father. And glance over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children someday. We are God's children at some point in the future. We are God's children when? Now. Now. Did you catch that? You are beloved right now. The good news of the gospel doesn't just address the regrets of yesterday and the anxieties of tomorrow. The good news is about God's love for you right now. It's about who you are right now in this very moment. So, that word now has, has just ravished me and anchored me the past couple of weeks. I was having a hard time, just God's word was dry to me and just wrestling with God a little bit. And so what I do in those moments, I always go to familiar passages. One of those is Romans 8. I didn't get past the first verse. Really like the fourth word. There is therefore now no condemnation. God didn't have to put now in there. He could have just said there's, there's no condemnation. But He's kind. There's therefore now no condemnation. And then I'm reading First John. I'm like, there it is again. Beloved, we are God's children now. Oh, how sweet is that three-letter word. Now. Right now, no condemnation. Right now, no shame. In Christ, right now, only eternal, redeeming, triune, rescuing, steadfast love. So if you'll permit me to give you a phrase to apply this passage to your life, let me encourage you to enjoy the nowness of your belovedness. Enjoy the nowness of your belovedness. And then when you wake up tomorrow and it's now, enjoy the nowness of your belovedness. For various reasons, I realize. 
that some of us are afraid to have good thoughts about God. I can think of at least three reasons why. For some of us, we've participated in and committed sins that are so gruesome that we think God would never love us. For others of us, it's because something so horrendous has happened to us that we think we're unworthy or unlovable. And maybe for others, it's because your earthly father or some other authority figure in your life took their power and their position to abuse you. And now, when you hear God as Father, you can't help but have chilling thoughts. You're broken. You're scared. You're hurt. And I don't want to minimize any of those. I do not want to run past your experience and your emotions and say they don't matter. They do. So if that's you, any, any of those categories, if that's you and you, you want to help process, come find me. We'll try to get you the help that you need. But for now, I just want to, I want to read a couple more verses over us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Your sin might be great, but God's grace is greater still. You might be overwhelmed by shame, but that does nothing to diminish God's cherishing of you in Christ. And though someone on earth might have abused their power at cost to you, the Father and the Son use their power at cost themselves for you. So by faith, Christian brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit wraps us up in an insoluble union with Christ so that God the Father really does Delight in you as He delights in His Son. Perfect, passionate, intimate, unfailing, steadfast, joy-filled, smile-producing love. What comes to mind when you think about what God thinks about you? Beloved? And this love is available to anyone and everyone who comes to Christ. Says Christ, you are all I have. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? If you want to do that, do that this morning. Talk to the person who brought you here. Come find me. Talk to anybody you've seen up front. But don't leave this place without saying, what does this look like in my life? God is love and loves us. So beloved, love one another. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I hope by now you see John's movement. So John is moving from who God is and what God has done to who we are and what we should do. He's moving from the greater to the lesser. 
And he's saying the root of God's love in your soul produces the fruit of God's love in your life. And notice this text addresses not just Christians individually, but corporately. Eleven times in these six verses we see plural pronouns. Eleven times. John is not just addressing individual Christians, though he is. He's addressing the group. Three times in this passage alone, we're told we have the privilege and the responsibility to love one another. See that in verse 7, verse 11, and verse 12. So, so here, here's John's whole argument. John is telling us, God who has existed eternally in a loving community, Father, Son, and Spirit, and has loved us, so now we should be a loving community by continually loving one another. In short, John is calling the members of the church to love one another as an expression of their love for God. Drop down to verse 19 and 20 in chapter 4. He says this, We love, why? Because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? What is he? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see John's argument. You cannot claim to abstractly love the invisible God and neglect to concretely love your visible brother or sister. Love explodes from a heart ravished by God's love. He's saying, live loved. That's how we're to live. And remember our definition of love, taking initiative to excite life in another, even at cost to ourself. I want to say it another way. True love is striving to build one another up in Christ, even when it's hard and uncomfortable. Love is costly and often inconvenient. It takes initiative. It's more concerned with giving and not getting. Love is about other-oriented commitment, not self-centered consumption. Other-oriented commitment, not self-centered consumption. That's what God is, other-oriented. And one of the ways we express that is by committing to one another. So for my friends who take the name of Christ, but you're unwilling, you refuse to commit to a church, can I just encourage you to evaluate what this says about your love for Christ? I'm not saying you have to join this church. There are plenty of gospel-believing churches. But if you outright refuse to commit to a local church, can I ask you, can I encourage you to evaluate what this says about your love for Jesus? Because John and Jesus would have you commit to a church where you can concretely love those other members as you're an expression of love for Christ. And as you heard Chris pray earlier, by God's grace, I think our church does this pretty well. Perfect? No. You're not going to find a perfect church. And as they say, if you do, don't join because then you'll make it imperfect. (laughs) But by God's grace, brotherly and sisterly love are vibrant and active in our church. You've committed to one another. You serve one another well. You try to bear each other's burdens emotionally and physically and spiritually. And on the whole, you help each other follow Jesus. Praise God. And we have room to grow. We haven't arrived. So let me suggest some ways this type of love might continue 
to show itself in our church family. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. So as I go, I'm not trying to guilt you anything. I prayed all week the Holy Spirit would comfort, would spur on, and where necessary, convict. What might this look like in the life of Restoration Church? Love one another by preserving gospel unity instead of insisting on personal preference. Love one another by speaking the gospel tenderly to each other in your sins and your struggles. Love one another by giving generously to the ministry of this church. Love one another by serving the church. There are informal ways you can do that, but there are also formal ways that we need people to serve this church every week. Restoration kids, set up, tear down, greeting. And it can be unloving to assume somebody else will do it. Love one another by prioritizing the gathering and faith, gathering of this church and faithfully attending a community group. As one of your pastors, I tenderly say to you, don't let church be the thing you do if nothing else comes up. Some of you may miss more church than you think. And there are rippling effects, some of which can be unloving, that you don't even see. Love one another by reaching out to that brother or sister who is hurting, to that one who is lonely, to the one you haven't seen around in a while. Just reach out to them. Say, how are you? How can I serve you? Invite them into your home and pray with them. Love one another about being honest with your own struggles and sins. We love one another when we invite people in to help us. Love one another by rejoicing with one another when things are good. Love one another by speaking encouraging words. How easy is it to critique and complain? It's so easy. But take the initiative to encourage one another and then actually tell them to their face. Love one another by repenting and seeking forgiveness. Love one another by celebrating differences. You recognize our non-moral differences are ways that God displays His unique grace in our church. So don't just tolerate them. Let's celebrate them. We're all weird. We're all strange in our own way. Right? If you think you're not, just ask somebody. Let's celebrate it. Love one another by spurring each other on in evangelism. Love one another by prompting each other to consider how to care for the poor or to consider adoption or foster care. Love one another by regularly pointing each other to heaven, the world of perfect love. Those are just a few ways. And I recognize, even as I wrote that, I started to feel overwhelmed. And it would be if it were up to us. But God not only gives us the pattern of love, but the power to love. His Spirit lives inside of us, beloved. The same Spirit that God the Father and Son and love and triune fellowship is in us. He poured it out into our hearts. He knits our hearts together. Will this be risky? Yes. Does it require vulnerability? For sure. Will you get hurt? Probably. Will you like everything about our church? No. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. And here's why. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. 
No one has ever seen God. John, John says the same thing in his gospel. Well, then how do we know what God is like? Well, the answer in the gospel of John is he sent his only son. Jesus makes him known to us. Well, Jesus is not here. He's reigning on high in heaven. How do we know what God is like now? John's answer is astonishing. The unseen God now reveals himself in his people as they love one another. That's amazing. God's love that originates in himself and is manifested in the Son is now made complete in the church. So if you want to know what love is like, look to the cross and look at the church. When we love one another, it says God abides in us. This doesn't mean we earn it. It means we evidence that we have it. God's presence really dwelling among us. And then what does it mean? He says it's perfected in us or made complete. It means that God's love is so rich and textured and multifaceted that it takes all of us together to see, to savor, and to show it. My love for God is one-dimensional. Left to myself, I only know how God loves me. But God's love is so much bigger than my limited experience. So in order to more fully understand and be fully assured in God's love, I need to see and experience His grace in the lives of other brothers and sisters. That's what John's saying. So when I see another brother or sister treasuring Christ through trials and the hard times, it encourages me. So just this past week, I got a text from a brother that says, man, this past year has been really hard, but God is good. And I see what he's been through and I say, yes, God is good. He sustained this brother and he's helped me love God through him. When those happy times come and we, we rejoice with our church member, our souls refreshed by God's goodness. When I'm cared for in community group, it's a tangible reminder of God's grace to me. Being a covenant member of this church is one of the greatest privileges of my life. Because you help me love God. And I hope in a small way, I do the same for you. And then all of us together, we help you to love God. So it takes all the saints together in the happy times and the hard times. All of us together. The good and the bad. The tears and the triumphs. All of us together to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And as we do this, we'll point each other to and help each other hope in what's to come, heaven. Heaven on earth. That's what heaven will be. The place of perfect love. God's people together forever in perfect love. So the church is like a window through which the breeze of a far-off country often blows. As our love for one another permeates the air, the aroma of heaven animates our imagination of what lies just ahead. And as others walk in and they smell the sweet aroma, they too might come to know and enjoy Christ as well. That's what we get to do. Every Sunday... A little breeze blows of a far-off country. Every community group, every disciple relationship, that little breeze of a far-off country wafts into our nostrils and it makes us yearn for what is just ahead. So as we love one another, we see God, we savor God, and we show God in ways we could never do alone. Beloved God is love and loves us. So let's love one another. And as we do, will not only help each other enjoy God's love even more, but others might come to know and experience it for the first time and join with us as we journey toward heaven together.
Father, we do praise you. We marvel at the vastness of your love. Let us not overlook it, run past it. Let us enjoy it. And Holy Spirit, spur us on to love others as an expression of your love for us. We praise you for the ways this is happening. Oh, how kind you are. And we pray for the glory of Christ. It would happen all the more. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.